0: Hey listeners, just a warning. This episode covers developments in the war in Ukraine and will briefly include the sound of gunfire. Shane Harris, who reports on military intelligence over at the Washington Post, traffics in confidential information. Memos, PowerPoints, reports. And over the last few weeks, he's been sorting through a mother load of them
1: yes, I mean, I can pull them up on my computer and yeah, there's just like PDFs everywhere.
0: It all started with that Discord leak a few weeks back.
2: This morning, a bombshell report is revealing details about the leak of what appears to be highly classified US military documents. The Pentagon is doing damage control after someone leaked dozens of classified documents about the war in Ukraine. All of this coming out as Ukraine battles Russian forces in Bakhmut and as it prepares for a new counter-offensive.
0: For Shane, this initial information dump, it was just the beginning.
1: From these Discord leaks, there were an initial tranche of around 50 or so, depending on how you count it, documents that did show up on the broader Internet. And then the Washington Post has, you know, obtained additional documents, which we have access to now. And those are the ones that, you know, we're kind of going through systematically to, you know, read through them all kind of categorize them, understand what they say.
0: What these documents say is that the U.S. is watching the Ukrainian war very carefully, trying to figure out how each side is processing the day-to-day conflict for sure, but also speculating about how much longer Russia can pay for its invasion, pointedly critiquing Ukraine's optimism in battle.
1: And they don't make predictions per se, but they do, I think, try to give policymakers a sense of like the forecast. You know, given the following conditions, here is, you know, the likelihood that X will happen. And you do see in some documents where they'll even have sort of scenarios where if we did the following things to help the Ukrainians, what would be the likely impact on Russian forces? And they try and kind of rate that sometimes. So it is a little bit of like a hazy crystal ball. And I think that's just what it's like to work in the intelligence community.
0: You know, this war has been notable to me in that the U.S. and Ukraine and Europe have all seemed to be operating in lockstep since the beginning. I wonder if these documents you've seen complicate
1: that narrative a bit. I think they do complicate it a bit. And it's much more, it's frank. It's like a candid assessment. Like, when you look at these documents, what you're seeing is like, it's the unvarnished picture
0: today on the show, what this unvarnished picture of the war in Ukraine reveals about unconventional tactics on the ground and how fighting will escalate this spring. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover.
2: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts.
0: So first it was Dade County.
1: Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin.
2: In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people.
0: And then it was Wichita, St. Paul,
2: Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community which shocked us all.
1: If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again.
2: Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There
0: ain't no going back. In your recent reporting, you really focused in on one element of these leaked documents, Ukrainian operations inside Russia and how the U.S. and Ukraine have been communicating about those. And I think that's interesting because in the U.S., I don't feel like we hear a lot about these operations. These are things like drone strikes inside Russia by Ukraine. So I'm wondering if you can just start by explaining exactly what these kinds of operations look like.
1: Well, these are what you would probably conventionally call special operations, distinct from, you know, traditional military maneuvers involving maybe lots of troops or tanks or artillery fire.
0: It already feels very cloak and dagger.
1: It is very cloak and dagger, absolutely. And these are overseen, in fact, by an intelligence agency in Ukraine. We're talking about things like sabotage, you know, behind the enemy lines, explosions, you know, a drone flying over a bomber base to take out a plane, car bombs outside of Moscow, things that Ukraine is doing but won't officially acknowledge that they're doing. And the reason for that is that these attacks are meant to... You know undermine russian resolve send a message to russia but they're also not designed to be too provocative so the ukrainians are not going to sort of be you know dancing in the streets over this these are special operations they're designed to be a little bit obscured and these in particular what's interesting is that ukraine by doing these kinds of attacks can send a message to putin you know we can hit you inside of your country we can take this war to you. From the American perspective, that can be useful. It also makes officials in Washington a bit nervous.
0: Was there a reason you wanted to focus on these attacks?
1: I will tell you that I have been, since you know the beginning of the war, really, really interested in these deniable, in some cases, denied attacks that are going on inside of Russia because there's such a point of tension between Ukraine and its supporters in the West, you know, that it's everything about giving Ukraine weapons has been about giving them weapons to fight in Ukraine, to fight Russia in Ukraine and not to take the fight to Russia. But of course, Ukraine wants to take the fight to Russia. Why wouldn't they? I mean, their country has been invaded. So these these are these flashpoints that tell you where that tension is heightened with this alliance. So, the documents kind of provide this window into an area that I've just been fascinated about, but that is really hard to penetrate as an outsider.
0: Yeah, I mean you you've ta- you talked about how you know in some ways it's an it's an open secret that these kinds of operations are happening, but then there are times when maybe these operations go a little bit too far. Like there was this car bomb in August that killed a woman in Russia. Seems to have been meant for her father, who is a Russian nationalist who's close to Putin.
1: As Darya Dugana's body lay in an open casket, among the mourners, grief, sorrow, but also massive anger and a thirst for revenge. Dugana's father, the hardline pro Kremlin ideologue Alexander Dugan, emotional, openly calling for a massive escalation of Russia's invasion of Ukraine.
0: It seems like the US was not thrilled about that.
1: Yeah, they were not. This was a this was a car bombing that killed a woman named Daria Dugina. And in in by all accounts, it seems that indeed it was an attack by Ukraine that was intended for her father. And from from my own reporting, you know, I know that when, you know, officials in the US and, and other European officials were Pretty upset about this because they felt like, look, you to the Ukrainians, the message was, you're going a bit too far here. You know, you're this is too provocative. And by the way, you ended up killing a civilian. I mean, this person was not a government official, and nor was her father, really, by the way. So you could see in that instance, you know, Ukraine going over the line of what I think it's Western allies felt was tolerable for attacks inside Russia, which themselves are already quite provocative. And there was kind of a wrist slap after that, I'm told. And the message to, you know, President Zelensky was, listen, you know, you got to get your people under control here. This kind of thing you can't do again. But it kind of gives you a real flavor for how these attacks will unnerve officials who are supporting Ukraine because they don't want the war to escalate. They don't want Putin to have an excuse to then, you know, escalate the war more ferociously against Ukraine or possibly in a way that even drew the United States more directly into the conflict.
0: Yeah, it's interesting to look at these operations because they really do seem like the dirty work of the war. And I I didn't realize until I read your reporting how much ukrainians openly talk about and celebrate these kinds of attacks like you talked about how the smoke from any kind of mysterious explosion in russia people call it cotton they've started mm-hmm. giving each other cotton bouquets as gifts like i i had no idea
1: yeah isn't that interesting i mean it's 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 kind of like again the open secret where you know it's you know the word cotton or bavona you know in ukrainian is what the word they use is, is a reference to these, you know, mysterious explosions that just seem to happen. And I think that gives you like a real sense of what the Ukrainian military's motivation is for these attacks. They give people kind of a rallying point or even like a symbol of resolve and of strength. And it's something that everyone can kind of wink in a nod, you know, play along with. And so I think that that also – it gives you a sense too that, you know, Washington understands that. I mean they they understand that these things while – more perhaps, you know, tactical in nature, do have a larger strategic point, which is about morale and resolve and sending a a public message to Putin.
0: Who's the mastermind inside Ukraine of these covert attacks?
1: So the mastermind of these attacks is a 37-year-old major general named Kirill Budanov, who is kind of an outsized figure. I mean, you might even call him a celebrity probably within Ukraine insofar as, you know, the leaders of, of the war go. He has had a pretty meteoric rise in Ukraine's military intelligence directorate, which is called the HUR. He's a major general at the age of 37. To put that in some perspective, usually like U.S. officials would not reach that rank until their 50s. So he is very much an up-and-comer. I think it's probably fair to describe him, you know, colloquially as a war hero. Um, he fought against Russia after they invaded in 2014. He was wounded. Um, he's been on many secret missions that, you know, the government you know, notably will not discuss. He's kind of one of those guys that operates in the shadows. He's received a number of important decorations from the government.
0: You've described him as a soldier crossed with a spy.
1: Yes, exactly. And really embraces this persona, we should say. I mean, he is. He gives a lot of press interviews. He's quite charming. You know, he has a pet frog in his office. No, he doesn't. He does. He has a pet frog in his office. Um I've talked to, you know, very senior Western intelligence officials who interact with Budanov, and they both like him and think he's fascinating, and he also makes them a little bit nervous because Budanov is the guy who does want to take the fight more directly to Russia. You know, one reason I should say, too, that Western intelligence officials, particularly in London and in Washington, like him so much is Budanov was really the guy in the Ukrainian government who was saying the Russians are going to invade. Like, he accurately— predicted it. So
0: this is like a game-recognized game thing. Like, (laughs) The U.S. is like, yeah, this guy's smart. He's also a little wily, and we can't really control him.
1: That's right. And I should say, too, I think he likes that, and I think he likes knowing that. I mean, he is, you know, he's brash, he's talented, and I think that he likes this persona. It's also clear that he's been very successful.
0: What are some of the rules the U.S. has put in place to just, to avoid Crossing hard lines in this relationship between Ukraine, Russia.
1: Well, one of the big rules the U.S. has put in place is the Ukrainians cannot use U.S. provided weapons to launch strikes inside of Russia.
0: So be as covert as you want, but you can't use
1: our stuff. Right, and you know, and this also you see like the more public kind of demonstration of this when the United States has said, you know, we'll give you, you know, kind of like longer-range artillery, but we're not going to give you anything that's long enough to reach all the way into Russia. Then there seem to be like lines that I don't fully understand yet, but maybe you're more situational. And And these leaked documents tell us some things about those. And you know in one which I wrote about was that back in February when the anniversary of the invasion of Ukraine was approaching Budanov was actually making plans to do mass strikes on February 24th on the anniversary with as it was described in one document with everything that the HUR his agency had. Uh, you know, in its arsenal. And officials back in Washington were listening in on these conversations that he was having, and they seemed to have gotten pretty nervous. And we know from one of these documents that two days before the anniversary, the CIA reported that the HUR, Budanov's agency, had agreed at Washington's request, it says, to postpone strikes on Moscow.
0: So the U.S. came in and said, no, we're not doing this.
1: Yeah, U.S. came in and said, like, let's not do this.
0: What we're really talking about is the way Ukraine and the U.S. are dancing on this line. And what I'm trying to figure out in talking to you is whether these documents also expose a growing crack between the U.S. and Ukraine or attention.
1: I do think they show attention. I mean, to me, and I think. I've heard this in conversations that I've had with you know, officials from all the countries involved in this. This spring counteroffensive that is coming up that everyone has been anticipating for so long and there's been so much talk about it because Ukraine has been talking about it publicly because they want support for it. It's it, it kind of, I don't want to say it feels like Ukraine's last stand, but you see this in the documents and you hear it in private conversations that the West is basically going to give Ukraine kind of one more turn of the handle here with the counteroffensive.
0: After the break, as Ukraine thaws out this spring, the war is expected to continue to escalate. So what do these newly released documents say about what happens after that? As Shane Harris said, Ukraine's been making sure the world knows it's got no plans to back down in the face of Russian aggression. But looking through this trove of leaked documents he's got, it's clear U.S. operatives are worried about a Ukrainian escalation, how long it could last, and how much could be lost along the way.
1: There is no expectation among Ukraine's allies right now that this spring offensive is going to lead to major gains of territory. The documents lay out a recipe for a grinding stalemate that will continue on indefinitely, particularly on this, this eastern front line in Ukraine. There are troubling signs that Ukraine is running out of munitions, that it will not have what it needs in terms of artillery shells and other vital equipment to kind of keep up the fight. Against Russia.
0: But isn't that like a U.S. and Europe thing? Like, aren't we supplying munitions?
1: We are supplying munitions, but there's also limits to what the U.S. and Europe can provide. I mean, in some cases, there are stockpiles that are running low uh, among Ukraine's allies, and that stuff has to be replenished and new things and new equipment has to be made. There's not a limitless supply of this. Uh, and that's even putting aside the political question of, you know, pointing out uh, that you know, in the U.S., you know, there is growing sentiment in the Republican Party about perhaps, you know not going on to support ukraine indefinitely. The documents don't get into that. That's still quite a ways in the future. What they're painting is a picture now where ukraine is stressed to the maximum, but so is russia. I mean, russia is just, you know, is just pouring troops, you know, into a meat grinder basically along the eastern front.
0: And unlike ukraine, they're willing to empty out their prisons to sort of provide people for battle.
1: That's exactly right. I mean, one of the things that comes through in the documents is that Russia very much believes, Putin, we should say, believes, that time is on his side. And I think he's right about that. Russia is prepared to keep emptying prisons, to use conscripts, and throw them into the front, and basically use them as cannon fodder to deplete Ukraine's supplies of ammunition, of men, and just draw them down.
0: To understand the future of this war, Shane says, you've only got to look at what's happening already in the eastern city of Bakhmut. Since last summer, Russia and Ukraine have been in a heated battle there. This fighting is now known as the longest and deadliest battle of the invasion, with close-range trench warfare popping up all around the city. But despite heavy losses on both sides, neither Ukraine nor Russia have shown signs of backing down.
1: I think that the story of Bakhmut is going to prove to be such a pivotal point in the narrative of this war. Why? You know, privately what U.S. officials have been telling the Ukrainians, and we knew some of this before and we're seeing it more in the documents, is that they have really significant concerns about why Ukraine keeps fighting for Bakhmut. They've basically said in so many words, look, this is not strategically important. There are kind of bigger goals that you should be focused on.
0: Right. It's not a port city. It's not the capital. It's not any of those things.
1: Right. And it's become a a point of symbolic struggle for Ukraine to hold Bakhmut. It's become more symbolic than strategic is how the United States sees this. And what they worry about is Ukraine unnecessarily depleting vital stores of munitions, of artillery, of equipment and people on this battle for this city, which, you know, the Americans are saying it's not important enough for you to waste this, particularly ahead of the spring offensive. And I think that the same goes for Russia. I mean, Russia and Putin see Bakhmut as strategically vital as well. And they are burning through munitions and burning through people. And, you know, it is a place where both sides are putting in so much energy but are each depleting one another so much. I think that, U.S. And, you know, and, and European officials would like it if Ukraine would just say, you all know, right, we're moving the focus off Bakhmut onto the spring offensive and we're kind of going kind to of save our energy for that. That It's going to be so fascinating to see when all is said and done, whether or not Bakhmut proved to be you know, a folly perhaps, for one side or the other. But, you know, American officials for a while now have been trying to persuade the Ukrainians, you know, not give it up, but basically do not focus so much on this one battle because you have, you know, bigger challenges that lie ahead of you.
0: That's so interesting. I hadn't thought about it that way, the sort of strategic decision of like, I'll fall here so that I can be stronger elsewhere. And it sounds like the U.S. is trying to be like, listen, guys, if you you just like let this go, then maybe this other thing will work out better for you. And that conversation's not going so great.
1: Yeah, it's it's not going so great. And from the American perspective, again, they would prefer, I think, not to see the Ukrainian forces depleting themselves on, you know, a target that they think is much more symbolically meaningful than it is meaningful to the conduct of the war.
0: Do you imagine what a diplomatic end to this war could look like?
1: I think you could imagine... You know, people use the term frozen conflict sometimes. I've heard Ukrainian officials even (laughs) use this recently. I also, though, imagine that there's going to be a lot of disagreement over, you know, what the role of the United States is going to be in supplying weapons to Ukraine going forward. I mean, Ukraine is going to demand, understandably so, you know, more equipment, more fortifications, you know, it's it wants to be in the EU, it wants to be in NATO, ultimately.
0: It sounds like you can't imagine a diplomatic solution to this
1: war right now. I don't think I really can. Yeah, I think that's what we're getting at, right? It's like, it's very hard to imagine what that looks like. And I think that's why the spring offensive could be so instructive to that outcome. Because, I mean, let's just say, you know, spitballing here. But let's say, I mean, Ukraine performs magnificently and in and, and Russia just suffers a series of humiliating defeats. and Putin really feels his back against the wall. How does that change Putin's calculus? Also does it make him want to lash out even more? I mean, we should we should not just take it that if, you know, Ukraine does well, that means Putin will be more conciliatory. He might, turn more aggressive. You know, the, the dreaded use of tactical nuclear weapons, for instance, you know, is that something that becomes a more appealing option to Putin?
0: Because it can shut the war down.
1: You know, I've talked to officials, you know, who, being very candid, you know, say, we want Ukraine to succeed, but we worry that it might succeed too much. That, you know, if, if suddenly the war turns and Putin really feels that Crimea could be threatened he might find that totally unacceptable and might see that as an existential threat to him, you know, to his control of the regime, to his, his rule in Russia, and might compel him to do terrible things. This is another reason why this spring offensive, it's, it's about so much more than just the territory gained on the ground. It's about how this changes the dimensions of the geopolitics at play here, what it compels Putin to do, how it might change his thinking, how it changes thinking in Ukraine among its allies. I mean, it's a very fateful couple of months that are coming up.
0: Shane, I'm super grateful for your reporting. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Anytime. It's great to talk to you, Mary. Thanks.
0: Shane Harris covers intelligence and national security at The Washington Post. And that's our show. If you are a fan of what we're doing here at What Next, giving you all the context you need, the daily news, the analysis, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. It's our membership program. So go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus. Find out all about it. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, Rob Gunther, and Madeline Ducharme. We're getting a ton of support right now from Laura Spencer. We are led by Alicia Montgomery with a little boost from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. Say hello. I'm at Mary's desk. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon.
2: Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So...